Father God, we come before you this morning asking that you would be with us as we sing your praises, as we learn from your word. We pray you, you would move our hearts towards Jesus, God. We thank you for the words that you have given us. We pray that these words would be true among the church here at the branch as well as other churches in Corvallis this morning, that the gospel would be proclaimed and that your name would be glorified at Redemption Church and Calvary and many other churches in Corvallis and Albany and beyond, all the way to Portland at Hinson and Gresham Bible and other churches, Lord, throughout this country. We just pray that your name would be made great this morning that inroads would be made in the culture so that more people would know Jesus and that that would change our hearts towards one another, God, that we would be more loving, more gracious, more patient, more kind because of the love that we have received from you, God. We pray, Lord, that as we come to your word this morning, that our meditations of our hearts and of our, the words of my mouth would be pleasing to you and that all those that hear these words would sing your praises. In Jesus' name, amen. Good morning. Uh, my name is Jacob Fifehouse. I'm one of the elders here at the branch. It's great to be with you again. Uh, it's warm in here, so... Fortunately, I'm not a long-winded preacher, but uh, yeah, so this morning we're continuing in the Psalms. We've been going through the Psalms this summer with the Songs of Ascent, and this week we're on Psalm 129, as Bridget read for us. Thank you, Bridget. So I want to start out with a little bit of context for this Psalm, just to give you a picture of what the writer of this Psalm was going through at the time, as well, the songs of ascent, right? So what the writer was thinking, as well as what the pilgrims that are then later singing this song are thinking and feeling as they're singing this out and proclaiming it. So like other songs of ascent, this was sung by the pilgrims as they journeyed to Jerusalem for things like annual festivals. In particular, it's generally believed that Psalm 129 was composed during a time in Israel's history when the nation was facing external threats and attacks from surrounding nations. So the people of Israel were facing oppression and affliction yet again, and we're gonna see how this psalm provides them a message of hope in the middle of all these challenges. So we'll break this into two parts, first verses one through four, where we're gonna see them describe and remember the oppression that they faced and how God delivered them out of that oppression. And then we'll look at the second half, five through eight, to see how God's intervention provides hope and what this means for us. So main idea takeaway for today that I want you to come away with is that no matter the trials you face, God's faithfulness will ultimately bring victory over oppression. No matter the trials you face, God's faithfulness will ultimately bring victory over oppression. So if you'll read with me again uh, verses one through three of this psalm, it says, Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. Let Israel now say, Greatly 
have they afflicted me from my youth. Yet they have not prevailed against me. The plowers plowed upon my back. They made long their furrows. The psalmist is crying out, remembering the affliction that has been faced time and time again by his people. Since the very beginning, those opposed to God have rallied against his people. In some translations, instead of saying greatly, it reads many times, they have afflicted me. So the psalmist is not saying this happened once or twice or three or five times, but many times, too many times to count. They have been oppressed and afflicted and have suffered for God. So if we take a look back to Exodus chapter one, we can see an early example of this oppression. I'm gonna start reading in chapter one, verses eight of Exodus. It says, now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. So this is the type of affliction that was faced over and over in history by the people of Israel. And they're recalling this as they travel to Jerusalem. But as the psalmist recalls all of this suffering and oppression and enslaving, he continues the second half of the verse, of verse two is a little different. He says, yet they have not prevailed against me. So the Israelites have endured centuries of oppression and yet they've continued on. None of their oppression, none of their oppressors, sorry, have succeeded. See, they are the longest enduring ethnic people group in the world. Through exile, hatred, persecution, slander, murder, and yet they have survived. The psalm goes on in verse three to describe in detail this pain and suffering that they, they faced. So this is a, a metaphoric, graphic description to emphasize this intensity. And yet they per persevered against it. The psalmist uses this imagery of a long furrow being plowed in their back, right? So a furrow is, is a long row plowed deep in a field from end to end. This is the kind of suffering they faced. It's like they were forced to lay down in the field and someone drove a plow over them. This left deep wounds and marks on them. Charles Spurgeon described it like this. The afflicted nation was, as it were, lashed by her adversaries so cruelly that each blow left a long red mark or perhaps a bleeding wound upon her back and shoulders comparable to a furrow which tears up the ground from one end of the field to the other. 
This is no small thing, no small wound. It has permanently scarred them. Maybe not physically, but as a nation, they've been scarred by all this oppression. And yet, in the middle of recounting this, in the very next verse, the psalmist declares, the Lord is righteous. He has cut the cords of the wicked. The Lord is righteous? He has cut the cords of the wicked? You see, they're singing this psalm because it brings them confidence and hope. Yes, they're remembering what they've suffered, but in that remembrance of being bruised and beaten down, they're still standing. Why are they still standing? The Egyptians enslaved them. The Philistines fought them for land and resources. The Assyrians conquered their land and pushed them out. The Babylonians took them captive, and yet the Israelites are still standing. How is this possible? How can they survive all of these attacks? Because the Lord is righteous. He has cut the cords of the wicked. This is their rally cry, right? They don't know what they're going to face next, but they know that they've faced oppression throughout their entire history. And they remember that pain and suffering all too well. But they also remember that they have persevered, that God has carried them through. And they didn't do this on their own strength, not their own willpower. It was the strength of God that delivered them. God has protected them and carried them through all of this. Now, wouldn't it be easy for the psalmist here to deny the righteousness of the Lord, remembering all this pain and suffering? It could seem to the psalmist like the Lord has allowed them to suffer or has abandoned them or left them for persecution. Isn't it all too easy for us to deny the righteousness of God and the power of the Lord in our lives? Don't we easily revert to standing on our own, trying to find comfort in things of the world instead of deliverance, instead of in the deliverance promised by God? When you are facing challenging times in your life, how do you respond? Do you let out a battle cry proclaiming God's righteousness in your life? Or do you turn to other things for support and comfort? When life feels overwhelming, do you hide behind a screen, endlessly scrolling? Maybe you stuff your face with food. Do you avoid standing for truth in fear of worldly consequences? Time and time again, the psalmist has faced oppression, and instead of denying the righteousness of God, his proclamation is the Lord is righteous. The Lord is righteous. Yes, all of these things have happened to me or my people over many years, but the Lord is righteous. He has always sustained us. He has cut the cords of the wicked. If we look in 2 Corinthians start, uh, chapter 4, starting in verse 8, we see some more imagery of this. It reads, We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, 
always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. See, the people of Israel were chosen by God to carry out a specific plan in this world. And yet, because they were chosen, they were hated. They were persecuted. And yet, their haters did not prevail. And friends, the good news, the good news for those of us here that know Christ, this story is true for all of us as well. You see, the affliction and suffering that Israel lived through directly points to the suffering of Jesus on the cross. While the Israelites were metaphorically disfigured by the plowing of their backs, like they were forced to lay down in a field, but Jesus was literally disfigured by the abuse he suffered from Roman soldiers. He was strung up on the cross. Isaiah 52 and 53 in parts describes it like this. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. So the Israelites have a very important role in God's redemptive plan for the world. This repeated pattern of suffering and deliverance that we see against their nation proves God's faithfulness to his people. God never wavers. They can't save themselves from their persecutors or from their own transgressions, just like we can't save ourselves. We can't stand on our own, and we weren't made to. You see, Jesus, the Son of God himself, is the true and better Israel. Jesus came to this world so that all those who believe in him can be delivered from our sinful state into everlasting life. God sent his Son here to be our Savior. He lived a perfect life and then gave up that life willingly for you and for me. The end of Isaiah 53 says this, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. He shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. Why? Why would God want to do this? So that we can be accounted righteous. And for that, Jesus took on our guilt. God did this for us. Isn't that amazing? It's not something that we can muster up inside of ourselves. 
or put in good works to achieve. No, nothing we can do will make him love us more. Nothing we can do will make him love us less. Salvation comes from God alone, and he has done it. It is finished. God preserved the people of Israel through all the centuries of oppression they faced, and because of the sacrifice Jesus made, we have been delivered from everlasting affliction. He gave his son to pay our debt. And if you're here today with us and you don't know the truth of what Jesus has done for you, please, I would love to talk to you after. Someone you came with would love to talk to you. We would love to tell you more about who Jesus is and what he has done to save us from our sins. You see, there's nothing in this world that can stand up against the love of God for his people. So let's move on to the last half of the psalm. So this part is a prayer asking God to justly judge those who hate Zion and withhold a blessing from them. Uh, We'll read that section again, verse five. May all who hate Zion be put to shame and turn backward. Let them be like the grass on the housetops, which withers before it grows up, with which the reaper does not fill his hand, nor the binder of sheaves his arms. Nor do those who pass by say, the blessing of the Lord be upon you. We bless you in the name of the Lord. At first glance, you might wonder what the psalmist is saying here. Is he wishing ill will on these people? Is this some kind of personal vendetta that he's trying to get back at those that have oppressed his people? But that's not what's happening here. You see, just like how the psalmist proclaims God's righteousness, this prayer is coming out of a concern for God's kingdom, not for his personal well-being. He is praying against those that hate Zion. So those that hate Zion are the enemies or those that have no regard for God and his promises. See, he doesn't only want his people to be delivered by God, but he wants God to turn back those that are against him and protect the entire kingdom that God is making. Those who hate Zion are traitors to man and to God. And this applies not only to the wicked, but also to the Israelites who do not fear the Lord. Now some have taken offense to this prayer, but really his prayer against the enemies is somewhat mild if you think about it. He doesn't ask that his enemies suffer like they have. He doesn't ask that they be sent to hell or anything like that. He simply asks that their plans against God not succeed. We see this in the imagery of verse six, He talks about grass on a housetop that withers and that the enemies would be like that. You see, grass already withers very easily in the hot sun, like today. I mean, if if you look around anywhere in Corvallis, if you don't water your grass all the time, it's brown and dead, right? But grass on a housetop, right, this this is like a shallow little tiny layer of dust that these grass seeds have blown into and are trying to grow up out of. They don't have deep roots, They'll never grow tall enough, it says, to be worth reaping. You see, those who hate Zion are weak compared to God. They are not everlasting. They will wither and fade 
and God's people will prevail. Israel has survived centuries of oppression, but their enemies will wither like grass on a rooftop. We know that God set the people of Israel apart for a special role in his redemptive plan. Right? These are the, the, the descendants of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And God made them a covenantal promise to provide and protect them. And he has fulfilled that promise time and time again, as we've seen here. But at the same time, this doesn't mean that God hates all the other nations. Not at all. God loves all of the people of the earth. He has proclaimed that every tribe and nation will be gathered around his throne in heaven. We are even commanded to be a part of this in the Great Commission, where Jesus said to his disciples, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. You see, the people of God have a rich and deep soil to grow in that's cultivated by God himself for our good and for his glory. The enemies of God have none of this, just some dry dust that they attempt to take root in. Now, friends, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't be on guard. That doesn't mean we should become complacent. No, we must continue to pray and have confidence in God to carry us through our times of suffering. If you are against what God has set apart, then you will be put to shame. That's what it says here. That is the people of Israel, but is also the church proclaimed in the new covenant. That is, God has set the church apart. And in our current cultural environment, it's easy to be down or worn out or have a pessimistic outlook about the future of the church. We see Christian values being eroded on a daily basis all around us. Even other churches have wavered or bent to worldly demands instead of holding firm to the truths found in Scripture. And it may seem to us at times like there is no path forward for the church in this world. Like how can so much truth be ignored by the masses? Like we have no voice to change the people's minds. Well, this psalm tells us that what we are facing in the world today as Christians is not new to God. Not at all. The pattern of oppression and wickedness against God's people has been happening for ages. And the people of God have always persevered. It's not because we are strong and mighty. It's because God is the Almighty, the All-Powerful, and he has delivered his people time and time again and carried them through this oppression. You see, God is faithful. He delivers on his promises, and he brings victory over oppression. So as people of God, as Christians living today, what should we do in response to this psalm? Here's a list of things that might be too long, but it's too bad. First, we should trust in God's faithfulness. 
Despite facing challenges and oppression, we can trust in God's enduring faithfulness. Just as he delivered Israel from their oppressors, he can also deliver us from our afflictions. We should place our confidence in God's sovereignty and rely on his promises. We need to know that mercy is not always immediate. We should persevere and remain steadfast in our faith. We are called to endure with hope and trust in his timing. If anything, we've seen here that none of this happened instantly. And so while we may feel worn down right now, God is working his plan out, and it's in his timing that everything will come to fruition. We should remember God's past deliverances. You see, reflecting on God's faithfulness in the past can provide us with encouragement and strength during challenging times. We should recall instances when God has rescued us or others from difficult situations, reminding ourselves of his reliability as our deliverer. We should resist oppression and injustice. This psalm reminds us of the importance of standing against oppression and injustice in our communities and the world. As followers of God, we are called to advocate for the oppressed and work towards creating a more just and compassionate society. This starts with prayer. We should avoid retaliation. Even in the face of oppression, the psalmist does not call for revenge. Instead, we should respond with grace and seek justice in a manner that aligns with God's principles. Avoiding bitterness and maintaining a spirit of forgiveness is vital in our journey as believers. Prayer in times of oppression. The psalmist's plea for deliverance reminds us of the importance of turning to God in prayer during times of distress. We can seek God's help knowing that he hears our cries and is attentive to our needs. We can also find unity and support within the community. The Song of Ascents was sung by pilgrims on their way to Jerusalem, and likewise, we can find strength and support in a community of believers. We were made for community. Encouraging one another and journeying together in faith can, be, can make the burdens of life more bearable. And finally, we must remain hopeful in difficult times. No matter how bleak our circumstances may seem, this psalm teaches us to maintain hope in God's deliverance. We should not lose heart knowing that God is with us and will bring about ultimate victory because the Lord is righteous. He has cut the cords of the wicked and they will not receive his blessing. You pray with me. God, we thank you for this truth. We pray that we would hold fast to it, that these words would cause us to change what we do this week as we respond to what you've called us to. We pray that we would remember that you are with us, that you will carry us through, and that we must endure for the time that you have us here. And that it is not a wasted time, God, but you 
have put us here for a reason, to proclaim your name and bring glory to you. We thank you for your son Jesus who gave his life up for us. It's in his name we pray.